Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeart Radio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. Hi, welcome to a new episode of Noble Blood. I am talking today with Peter K. Anderson, who is a senior lecturer in history at Örebro University in Sweden and author of the new book, Fool, In Search of Henry VIII's Closest Man, which is a book about the personal history, but also I would say the social and political history of Henry VIII's fool, William Summer, and also just of royal fools in general. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Sweden. Let's just start with the basics. Who was William Summer, or as he was sometimes known, uh, Will Summer? Yeah, William or Will. Most people who were named William were nicknamed Will in this period. Will Summer was uh, Henry VIII's fool. So he is known mostly as the king's fool. But he was not just Henry VIII's fool. He, he, he was uh, the court fool at the British royal court from about uh, 1530 up until his death in 1560. And that's when Queen Elizabeth I had just been crowned. So he was a uh, royal fool with Mary and King Edward and up until Elizabeth I. And also considering Henry's famously rocky marriage situations, this is one of the longest term relationships he had in his life. Yes, that's true. I've never thought about it that way. But but yeah, they must have had some sort of special relationship, so to speak. What the nature of that relationship was, we will discuss, but it's not very clear cut. As the title indicates, he was a person who was very close to Henry VIII in one way or another. Before we get into uh, Summer's biography, or what we know of his biography, I think people, when they hear, you know, medieval fool, they sort of think of a jester hat with bells and shoes with pointed feet. How close is that popular perception to the reality? Uh, not particularly in this case. I think there were fools uh, in Motley wearing the cap with bells and so on. But Mostly, this seems to have been some sort of stereotype about the fool. Uh, when we come to this period, the Renaissance, most fools, at least the fools we find in portraits, the fools that are depicted and that we can identify, they don't look anything like that. If you see a, a typical portrait of a Renaissance fool, you wouldn't know that it was a fool if you didn't look closely. There is very little to sort of identify them as fools in their portraits. And this goes especially for Will Summer, who was depicted many times in portraits, but always looking very mysterious, very brooding, never smiling or anything like that. Mm -hmm. A very sort of mysterious and almost dark figure. So what do we know about the life of Will Summer, who was this man who was so prominent at one of the most famous Renaissance courts in, in history? 
we know very little about him and uh, the the sort of contemporary references to him you could fit them on on one piece of paper really the thing about will summer is that quite a legend grew around him after his death so when you look at the late uh, 16th century and the period of shakespeare and so on there's quite a lot of references to him there um there's some sort of mythology around him and he is invoked as a sort of mythological gesture of the past, a sort of almost godlike figure in comedy, so to speak. And a lot of playwrights uh, include him in plays about the reign of Henry VIII, where he's depicted as a very sort of jesting and uh, shrewd comic. And a lot of books were written about him in that period, but very little of what you can find in that period is truthful. And uh, when you start to move closer in on, on his own period, and the sources that are closest to his life, you see that he was quite a different uh, character. He was probably what uh, was called in those times a natural fool. You you had this distinction between natural and artificial fools. And artificial fools constituted what we would call a, a comedian, basically, someone who was, who was uh, skillful at, at being funny. But natural fools were employed based on mainly on, on what we would today call an intellectual disability. It could be other things as well. It could be persons with a very sort of rural or common background who would be um, a contrast to the other peoples at court in a way that would be considered amusing. But natural fools were not the, the sort of shrewd wits that, uh, that they are sometimes depicted as in, in Shakespeare plays or in later fiction. One thing that I found so fascinating about your book is how you sort of trace how Summer, the character in fiction and plays, is depicted as this uh, famous wit, as a man of the people, who sort of this outside observer who's able to comment on the insanity of court or the indulgences of the church, uh, even though, as you lay out in Summer's lifetime, he almost certainly wasn't at least, you know, a, f a famous wit by anything that he was doing purposefully. How did no. that shift happen? That's a good question, really. It, it's difficult to say. I mean, it's it's very, the, the, the image that you describe is, of course, very attractive to us. We, we like to think of, of the fool as someone who sort of looks through all the performances and all the role playing going on at, at court, and who is a bit more like us, perhaps, and who, who sort of represents our perspective on, on this period. But it wasn't like that. And and uh, it's difficult to say how this shift in the image of Will Summer happens. But when we go a bit closer to his own lifetime, you see um, anecdotes about him, stories told about him, where you can find perhaps a grain of truth. You can find little facts and little nuggets of information that you can single out because they don't really have any uh, purpose in the anecdote. So it's just something that is mentioned uh, in passing. Things like the fact that he came from Shropshire, apparently, that he um, had a strange ability to fall asleep in odd places, which is mentioned in a, in a posthumous biography, but, but also in his own lifetime, and so on. So there are little things um, when, when we get closer to his own lifetime that might uh, have a sort of basis in truth. I love that detail of him frequently falling asleep because uh, listeners might be familiar with the fictional novels of Hilary Mantel, which, as you point out, she briefly alludes to Will Summer, but paints him almost 
as a narcoleptic, which I love when fiction yes, just takes a, yeah. a detail. He, she, she does a big thing about that. Like he has, you know, he has to have a an attendant when he's in town so that he doesn't fall asleep in the street and so on. There is no source about that, but but we have these indications that he might have had that sort of uh, condition. So so she does a, a funny thing about that. Yeah, I love that. You alluded to earlier the fact that. Summer is featured in numerous portraits, I think four that we know for sure, sometimes with Henry VIII at his side. Was that common for fools at the time, or does it say something about Summer's relationship with Henry VIII? It wasn't that common in, in England, actually. The only other example is uh, there's a portrait of Thomas More with his family, which includes his own fool. And you, and you can find... Uh, examples uh, from, from other countries, the Spanish court, for instance, and so on. But in England, this doesn't seem to have been a, a convention. So that's quite uh, interesting to find him in several portraits. There are no portraits of William Summer alone. We haven't been able to find anything like that. But he is included in a lot of family portraits, dynastic portraits, where he is standing in the background. And when you compare all these different portraits to each other, you, you can easily recognize this man. And you can also see a bit how he gradually becomes older and older as time passes. There are, of course, posthumous portraits. He was invoked and, and used as a sort of mascot of the court, even uh, up until the time of, of Elizabeth I. So he was probably viewed and used as a sort of symbol of the continuity of, of uh, the Tudor court. That's fascinating that these portraits of him are less to feature him as an individual and more just what he represented as a symbol. One other sort of, I think, maybe modern stereotype we have about the medieval and Renaissance fool is the idea of jester's privilege, that the jester gets to say anything that he wants and he won't get in trouble to speak truth to power. In the book, you refer to it as the legendary fool's license. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? Yes. Uh, and that, as, as I said, it connects a bit with this myth that has grown around fools as uh, literary characters, really. You find that a lot, of course, in, in Shakespeare plays, which often include a, a fool character that is very sort of shrewd and very amusing and, and clever and so on. The thing about the fool's license and so on, that, that is a bit, bit of a myth, really. Uh, yeah. Because when you when you look at the real fools in the period before this, they were not treated very very respectfully. They were they were definitely not sort of taken seriously in any way. I would say that perhaps they had a sort of carte blanche in in a way that they weren't taken seriously and they were considered fools. So they could in a way say what they wanted, but what they said was so little regarded. So it wasn't really a a thing or, 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 or something that would sort of have any political importance. So it, the natural fools, which were sort of the, the majority of fools in this time, they were not licensed in, in any way like that. They had, they had a rele relevance, of course. They were entertainers in one respect. They were also sort of symbols of, of, uh, of uh, deviance, of something different, something um, curious in a way. They were, in a, in a way, sort of part of the royal curiosity collections. The, the role was, was something quite different from the sort of myth that um, emerged in, in literature later. I mean, it comes 
partly from Shakespeare, partly from writers like Erasmus of Rotterdam, who wrote about praise of folly, uh, pamphlets, and so on. But then it, it starts actually to influence the role of actual court fools when you come into the 17th uh, and early 18th century. Then you find fools that are more artificial fools. They, they, begin, they begin to be called court jesters more than mm. earlier. Uh, and that's a different type of fool, really. They, they, are, they are more sort of clever and shrewd, and they, they do have the odd moment of um, sarcasm and, and uh, criticism. Archie Ar- Armstrong was the main uh, fool in the English court in the, in the 17th century, and he got into trouble a few times for saying witty or shrewd things that uh, weren't very popular with, with the king. And uh, sometimes uh, fools like Will Summer were um, disciplined quite harshly. It wasn't necessarily an easy or fun life. There are some violence that, that mm. you remark on in this book. Yes, they, they were disciplined. And, and especially Will, Will Summer, we, we see, um, was subjected to physical punishment and chastisement. As a contemporary play by a court poet called John Haywood, he sort of references the, the conditions of, of uh, court fools at this time. Um, and he has a long list of how they are treated. Some beat him, some bob him, some joll him, some job him, some tug him by the arse, some lug him by the ears, some spit at him, some spurn him. And, and the list goes on and on and on. So, 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 so it was quite an obvious thing at this time that the fool was someone who, who was uh, physically punished a lot. And this long monologue ends saying that not even Will Summer, the king's own fool, can avoid this kind of treatment. So, so um, he was definitely treated in the same way as other fools. And uh, by the way, as children and servants in, in this period. And there's a, an, an allusion you make in the book to uh, a fool, possibly Summer, who said something that insulted the queen and princess, that, that insulted court. Can you speak a yes, little bit to yes. that? We, we don't know if it is Will Summer, but possibly it is. Uh, and uh, in that case, there's a, a, an ambassador who, who mentions this in a, in a letter home to, to Spain. And, it, and he, um, he says that the, the king's own fool uh, slandered uh, the king's mistress uh, and, and the king uh, flew into a rage and nearly, nearly murdered him or threatened to murder him or something like that. And the fool had to go in hiding. Um, so this isn't really the only, the only sort of proof we have that, that King Henry would have become physically violent himself towards his fool. But it, but it is very interesting. And it, it shows that, yeah, the, the carte blanche, fool's license and so on, but you could over, overstep the mark, of course. And, uh, and even though you were a, a just a fool who, who just said foolish things, perhaps now and then there were moments when, when, when uh, the fool said things that could enrage the king, of course. Possibly this, this is not Will Summer at all. Possibly this is some sort of clever fool who, who had a very brief stint at, at the royal court. So, so maybe Made briefer by his, his lack of tact. Exactly, yeah. And maybe Will Summer was better in that respect because he didn't... There are no other, other sources, really, of him being critical or, or anything like that. One thing that I, I find very interesting about your book is how you talk about the influence that the Renaissance fool has on the modern stand-up comedian. And and you sort of suggest that that link isn't as clear as some historians like to believe, and that 
it's almost as if the idea of the Renaissance fool is what influenced the idea of, of modern comedians more than the actual fact. Mm, yeah. I mean, we, we, we like to think of medieval fools sometimes perhaps as some sort of precursor to the modern stand-up comedian. Yeah. They stood up in front of the dinner guests and had a, like a monologue or, or something like that. There is some... Uh, there's a Woody, Woody Allen film where, where he, he plays a medieval fool in, in just the same way as he is normally. And that's, of course, a very appealing uh, thought, but, but I don't think it was quite like that, especially not when, when we spoke, speak about the natural fools of the Renaissance. The, the link that I try to sort of um, put forth in, in my book is that the taste for natural foolery in the Renaissance was based on a, a sort of comic taste for the natural, for the spontaneous comedy and uh, some sort of authenticity, and, um, and that this should in, in some way have been taken further with the, with the image of the uh, court fool in Shakespeare and related mm. literature. Uh, and in that way, the sort of, because Shakespeare expresses this sort of um, penchant for, for more sort of natural and spontaneous and comedians who don't laugh at their own jokes and so on. That's, that's the sort of things that Hamlet says he likes in, in, in that play. So possibly there, there is a line to, to identify there which goes forward to today when we perhaps often think of uh, spontaneous comedy or, or a sort of natural streak in comedy as something to be strived after. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so, so but, but, but it's not very, it's not a sort of straight line from, from the medieval fool to the stand-up comedian. Shakespeare is, is famous for his fools that he's, you know, written, except in his history, Henry VIII, he specifically does not include Will Summer. Why do mm. you think that is? I don't know. I think, I think uh, there, are, there have been different explanations for that. One is that his regular clown actor, Robert Darman, wasn't available at that time. I don't think Shakespeare wanted to do what all the other playwrights did. So he, uh, he left Will Summer out of of his play, but he but he, he still he has a prologue that says to the audience, you know, you won't find this fool in this play that you might expect in a play about Henry VIII. So apparently, the fool's absence had to be explained away, and this shows that the, it, it was some sort of a convention to include Will Summer in, in these very popular uh, history plays about the reign of Henry VIII. As you sp say in your book, the information we have about Summer's life is uh, incredibly sparse, and you almost have to read between the lines in various legends and secondhand anecdotes that we get about him. Mm. Why, as a historian, were you drawn to this figure? I've had a long-standing <laughs> obsession with with court fools as a sort of historical problem, really. Uh, I mean, naturally, there there have been earlier historians uh, re writing books about this, uh, the history of, of the fool from from the antiquity, really, to up until today. And I've written a book myself in Swedish, uh, unfortunately, called the history of the comedian, where I try to see this sort of long history. Uh, but there is something special about the court fool and the fool in the Renaissance or the early modern period. Um, they, they, they aren't, as I said, the, the sort of typical precursor of the modern comedian. They, they are not just entertainers. If we look at Will Summer, for instance, he is never listed in payments or 
accounts together with other entertainers. You have a list of the sort of the minstrels and the musicians and all those people. He is never among those. He is always listed separately, perhaps together with stable boys or something like that. Very strange. So apparently he belonged to a different category. And that's also what you see when you when you look closely at the Renaissance fool, that they, they had a sort of ceremonial or almost ritualistic purpose, which you can sort of trace back to earlier times when the fool had a sort of almost scapegoat symbolic uh, importance. And they, of course, there's, there's also a lot of theology involved in this and the, the image of the fool in the Bible and so on. You speak to the the contradiction of of the the fool as a figure, someone who is you know sometimes physically disciplined in a cruel way, treated cruelly, laughed at, but that there is this almost religious side where where they're considered almost godly, you know, closer to God in that sense. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that that contrast a little bit? Yes, uh, that's very interesting because not even modern scholars have really been able to resolve that contradiction. Yeah. Uh, if you look at theological writings on, on fools or references to fools, you can find both a sort of tradition about uh, the so-called holy fools, the image, as you said, that fools were closer to God or had some sort of innocent connection with, uh, with God and so on. And this tradition is very clear if you look at orthodox Christianity. Um, mm. I think if, if you look at Russia, for instance, you, you can find a lot of ideas about holy fools. But then there are other, other ideas which also say that, that fools are almost like devils. They, they, they are godless. And uh, there's a, a psalm line, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, and so on. So, so there is a, like a tradition connecting atheism to foolishness, because it's foolish to, to deny the existence of God. And, and, um, and this also sort of implicates and, and comes into play when, you, when people speak about fools in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So it was very much uh, ambivalent. And I think this is visible also when you look at the treatment of ordinary fools like Will Summer. It almost is, a, is an interesting through line to how people in the Renaissance and early modern period viewed mental disability, intellectual disability. Absolutely. Um, and that's a, a, a big issue, of course, which a lot of historians have treated and, and are beginning to, to study more and more. What you can say about that is, is of course, that it's difficult to apply our terminology on, on that period because the, the terminology back then was, was completely different and the, the definitions and what you sort of, what was and wasn't um, a disability then was, was different. But, uh, but, but even there, you can see this ambivalence. You can see a lot of empathy and a lot of care, especially in, in communities, taking care of uh, people with a disability and so on. But also the cruelty and the beating and, and the sort of very cruel humor that fools are subjected to. The fool is a sort of bully victim, really, uh, in, in a lot of situations. And, and that's often the... the most obvious modern parallel when you when you study fools at this time. Bully in the sense that they were the ones being bullied. Yes, yes, bully victims. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very much so. So, so um, there aren't any more obvious bullies in history than Henry VIII. Really. Yeah. So, so it's very suitable this particular fool, but but also in other in other cases, of course. 
You mentioned earlier the sort of nebulous position that Will Summer had in court, not part of the chamber, but also not quite part of the household. What might his daily life have looked like? Obviously, we don't know, but just if you had to imagine. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. I, 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 some people earlier suggested that he had his own sort of quarters in the royal palaces and so on. I don't think that was the case. I, well, in that case, a very something very simple and, and perhaps together with, with servants or stable boys or something like that. There's even a, a reference in, in one of the anecdotes about him um, it says that after he had been entertaining the king, he went into a corner of the room to sleep with the spaniels. So it's suggesting that, that he slept in the dog basket, basically. Um, and there are theories about um, fools and dwarfs at this time being sort of human pets. And you can see that image sometime when you, when you see him falling asleep and and uh, being sort of in the background, lounging around, being quite comfortable, really, but but also treated with this com- combination of, of of sympathy and and uh, cruelty that that you might compare with with a pet. So 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 there is that dimension in it, really. So possibly his his daily life would be something like that. He would he would be around, especially when called for, but he would also probably live outside of the court and hmm. his life outside of court we know very little about but there is a there is a um a, 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 a document in the in the royal archives with payments for him being washed and shaved and his feet being washed and this is in connection with the coronation of Mary Tudor so it's quite possible that he was not at court before that but he was taken in Maybe some servant was sent out to find him in a tavern in London or something, uh, and and he was taken in because you had to have, of course, Henry VIII's fool around for the coronation. So he was taken in, he was shaved, he was fitted with new clothes, washed, and so on. And I believe so, he was so, also so, present at yeah. the coronation of Elizabeth as well. Yes, yes. That's one of the last sort of uh, records we have of him uh, in his life. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. That sort of also image of of The Fool as as more of a, a pet or mascot, I think also fits with this idea of him being featured in portraits. Mm. What sort of information have you gleaned about Will Summer from the visual aspect of him that we get in his portraits? 
Well, it's quite difficult to, to, I mean, it's very easy to, to get ahead of yourself and, and draw foregone conclusions based on his appearance. Um, we can't really say anything about his appearance uh, based on, on the portraits, apart from the fact that he was simply but uh, nicely dressed. Sometimes you can you can even identify the clothes he wears in the portraits with um, records from the wardrobe accounts where mm. these specific items of dress are ordered for him. Um his hair was was cut short, which was common in fools. There's also a portrait of of the Queen's fool at one point, Jane Fool. We know very little about, but she is also she also has her her head shaved. So so this was mm. this was something that was done in other in other fools as well. Apart from this, you you can't really say anything about him from based on on the portraits. But it's very frustrating, of course, because you have these portraits and you can recognize him. And in the very good portraits, of course, you can really see this is a, a real person. So you get very intrigued and very, and you want to know more. Um, but you, then you have to go to other types of sources to to be able to, to learn something more su- substantial about who he was. One point that you make in the book that I just found so fascinating is this idea of what folklore historians call tradition dominant, that when folk heroes are sort of uh, being added to the cultural lexicon, they're they're so almost like slotted into cultural archetypes that already exist, that, mm, you know, you'll yeah. just apply a local hero to a, a trope of a type of hero that people already know about. So with that said, we don't really know any specific jests that Will Summer did specifically because he might have just been used as, you know, the, the we, I mean, we, know, we, we know, I mean, there are, of course, um, contemporary records that I study in the book, which are sort of references to him saying things. Yeah. And, 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 and that seems to have been the main sort of appeal of him, that he, he, ha- he had a tendency to put his foot in his mouth to say things that others found funny that that sounded stupid or or something like that um sometimes it's it's like um it's difficult to say is he being intentionally funny here or is it just a gaffe that uh, people have sort of uh, recorded here and that's also interesting of course because was he sort of doing something himself deliberately or, or was he simply uh, a bully victim subject to uh, to circumstances and to other people's mockery and so on, but but you you can actually find that's the most interesting sources where yeah. where, where where people in letters or pamphlets say something that Will Summer has said uh, or that they have heard that he has said. That's Absolutely, where, yeah. Where you get closest to him, but but it's also very very strange because you never you never hear his own voice. Absolutely. I just meant sort of the the um, larger stories that have surrounded him also as the decades went by. Yes, I was wondering yeah. if you had a favorite jest <laughs> that had been attributed to him, either correctly or incorrectly. Ah, okay. Uh, oh, that's a good that's a good question. I mean, um, he, he doesn't seem to have been, and, and that also sort of says something about his personality. He doesn't seem to have been like a practical joker or a physical comedian, which other fools at this time could be. There are other stories of fools, you know, uh, eating a lot of laxatives and then sitting <laughs> on top of a, the face of someone who's sleeping, uh, something like that. Uh, it's always that. funny. It was funny it's, hundreds yes. of years ago. It's funny yes. today. 
exactly. Um, and uh, I mean, who wouldn't love uh, studying court fools in the Renaissance when you read a story like that? But with with Summers, everything is much more subtle, and therefore it's very much more interesting, but also very difficult to sort of get at him. But the things he he said and the quotes from him are 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 funny in themselves. But the thing that the sort of the motto that he had that most people who quote him refer to is you should you shouldn't abide by anything I say, and that becomes as a sort of figure of speech in among courtiers in this time. Oh, as Will Summer says, you shouldn't abide by anything I say. <laughs> they they sort of remark in in passing, and that suggests uh, a fool who, yes, maybe he had a tendency to put his foot in his mouth and so on. But maybe he was also a bit self-conscious about this. Wouldn't he have have become that after after all these years being being a court fool? So there you see uh, just just a hint of a person back, back behind those words. I mean, it's not quite Groucho Marx. I wouldn't belong to a club that would have me as a member. But but it but it's not that far from it because there there is some sort of self-consciousness there about the silliness and the foolishness of the fool. And also perhaps a bit of you know sadness about how he had ended up and and uh, what his status was as a man. Don't abide by anything I say. That's that's the sort of that's his message <laughs> in a way, which I, I think you can yeah you can go on and and analyze that for quite a long time. Well, I think that's a, a brilliant place to wrap up the sort of subtle tragedy of a man <laughs> whose legend has far outlived him. Peter Anderson, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about Will Summer or the cultural and political history of the Fool, pick up Fool. Thank you so much and, and have a lovely evening. I'll enjoy my, my day in Los Angeles and you enjoy your evening in Europe. Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure, really. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is created and hosted by me, Dana Schwartz, with additional writing and researching by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is edited and produced by Noemi Griffin and Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.